Hey, tis the season of giving, and if you are feeling like you could give a little bit to your favorite podcast, well, you can support Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories at patreon.com. Patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories for five or ten bucks a month. Get extra content, including uh, the newly released best of, or well, our very favorite music of 2023. Yes, that episode of the show is for Patreon only. If you support the show, we'll let you uh, grab that episode now. Go download that and all of the other stuff we've put up there for our Patreon supporters, including weekly newsletters and tons of top five and playlist episodes and and outtakes and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, it's more content than you can handle, so give yourself a Christmas present while you give us a little Christmas present. Check us out, patreon.com slash stories. You deserve it. <laughs> yeah, now, uh, let's do the show. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, everybody. Usually, we open the show by reading words that were written by a listener. Uh, but today, for something completely different, I, I would like to open the show by having you read a word from the great Joan Didion. Can you do that for us? Here's the quote. We went down Melrose Avenue to see the Flying Burrito Brothers. Oh, uh, yeah, she did. There were odd things going on around town. There were rumors. There were stories. Everything was unmentionable, but nothing was unimaginable. This mystical flirtation with the idea of quote unquote sin, the sense that it was possible to go too far and that many people were doing it was very much with us in Los Angeles in 1968 and 69. A demented, seductive, vortical tension was building in the community and the jitters were settling in. I recall a time when the dogs barked every night and the moon was always full. That's uh, Joan from the White Album, 1979. Did you ever read that book? No. I read Year of Magical Thinking, the later period Joan Didion about her husband dying. And let me just tell you, that was a rough month of my life, man. Like I, <laughs> That is a rough book. I've not read the White Album, but if you're totally unfamiliar, it's Joan Didion's collection of essays observing the cultural changes happening in L.A. at the turn of the 60s into the 70s. And I bring it up here because there's a chance that a fairly educated music fan might click on this episode and just like not be familiar with the Flying Burrito Brothers because their music hasn't really lasted like the individual songs and albums haven't really lasted in the way that their influence has. They, they have a large impact. And I think you get that when you hear them mentioned in a very famous work of literature by Joan Didion, she was going to see that band play in 1969, right? It helps ground this story in a way that just trying to explain who the musicians are and what they created, I don't think would capture the same way. And we can still explain who the musicians are because they're significant, for sure. Incredibly significant. So go ahead, do that. So the core quintessential version of this band is Graham Parsons and Chris mm-hmm. Hillman, who both came from the Birds, uh-huh. and then Sneaky Pete Kleinow and Chris Etheridge, Oh, and uh, Bernie Leadon. Yeah, he goes He goes on to start another band, I think. Uh, as the Didion inclusion will convey, though, you can't really separate this story from the time period. So there's a lot of cultural upheaval happening at this time that's challenging how people are thinking about all of this stuff. And one of those things is this intersection of politics and music, right? So like into the 60s, into the 70s, pretty soon you're going to have John and Yoko. But the conflict that pushes Graham out of the birds and into this time with the Flying Burrito Brothers 
actually has to do with his politics, his political viewpoint. Right, right. And the short of it is that the birds were planning on doing a tour in South Africa and Graham objects on the grounds of wanting to send a message about his disgust about apartheid. Now, they have problems before that, though. I mean, I, I hope that's really what it was. But to be clear, the birds in the late 60s have a lot of personnel problems. Uh, a, a nice prequel episode for this show would be episode 130, which is David Crosby versus the drugs. And if you remember, by the end of the 60s, Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman are just pissed off at Crosby all the time. And part of it is for his politics, because remember, he just like starts running his mouth about crazy stuff about Kennedy. But it's mostly for his ego. And, and meanwhile, the birds, as, as a band, are just imploding. Free base! Um, and a reminder <laughs> that they drove they, to drive to his house and fire him, and he got a settlement. And buys a sailboat. He buys a sailboat that becomes very important to him later. I don't want to spoil anything if you've not heard that episode, but I'm pretty sure he like tries to leave the country on it to keep from getting arrested. Episode 130 is so good, you guys. It's a <laughs> terrific listen, for sure. Well, this puts the birds in a weird situation because David Crosby's out and the drummer is gone. He leaves around the same time. And they've just made this really ambitious album that is called the Notorious Bird Brothers. Not to be confused with the fabulous Burrito Brothers. It has nothing to do, one has nothing to do with the other one. And they can't really recreate this album live with a reduced lineup. They figure that out pretty quickly. There's like three of them, and they're like, we can't even play these songs. And so that's when they bring in Graham Parson. And Graham brings in a lot of opinions, for sure. Give us some background on Graham in case people are just unfamiliar. He's like a music head, knows Graham Parsons, but a lot of people I don't think do. Yeah, and so his given name is Ingram Cecil Connor III, and the reason he had that name, Brian, is because he came from <laughs> orange money. He, he, didn't know he, that, he did come from money. He came from That's a true. lot of money, and he's a trust fund baby, more or less. Yeah. And so that sort of colors this story a little bit. Yeah, but his childhood had trauma with alcohol, alcoholism, affairs, death. and But everything changes. He sees Little Lee, sees Elvis before <laughs> in 1956, and he tries to form a band then. Yeah, and he's doing folk music in the 60s, and then he gets him, because everybody was, and then he gets himself into Harvard, and he hears Merle Haggard, and he falls in love with country music. And I'm not sure, but I don't think Harvard ever put that on the brochure. You know, like, hey, come to Harvard, hear hillbilly music. Why don't we get drunk and screw? Come on down to Harvard. Um, and then he starts a band called the International Submarine Band, and moves across the country to L.A. and starts hanging out with movie stars. One in particular, Peter Fonda. Oh, that good-looking guy. Yeah. Uh, also the guy who uh, told Ringo, I know what it's like to be dead. That's really true. <laughs> International Submarine Band. They end up in a Peter Fonda movie in 67, and Graham goes to the bank. Have you ever met anyone that you're still friends with at a bank? Your first meeting in the walls of a bank. No, but when I moved here where we live in Louisville, Kentucky, there were still ashtrays here, but you couldn't smoke in them. And I always thought that was weird. <laughs> well, you mean like in the bank? Yeah. Oh, I was like, you're just talking generally about ashtrays being present in different yeah. places? Okay. Yeah, it's like, in like a bank. each individual each individual like thing that you would walk in the bank, there's like an ashtray. It's like, what? I don't understand. never got around to moving them? Also, it must have been a very different experience going to the bank. When you like get going smoke? to the bank, yeah, light lighten up a camel, and you know, and just all of a sudden downshift into. <laughs> so, what are you doing? 
So about that loan, about that $30,000. How's, how's, yeah. Uh, my only yeah. experience with friends at a bank that I can really think of is I remember when I was visiting a friend back in town after I had moved away from the town that I had gone to school in. And he's like, hey, I think this girl used to have a crush on works at this bank. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, I've got to go into the bank. And I was like, well, I'm staying in the car because I don't want any of that madness. And so he goes into the bank and he gets her as the teller. And he's like, hey, uh, I think an old friend of yours is in my car, Brian. And she's like, oh, that dude had such a monster crush on me. <laughs> I was like, well, I wasn't very subtle. Apparently, she knew. <laughs> I was like, good good yeah. thing I didn't go in the bank. I, I, the reason I bring up weird bank encounters is the legend does go that Graham is at the bank waiting in line, and this is where he meets Chris Hillman. And they quickly discover, I don't know how, I guess they're just shooting the shit, but they discover they have a lot in common. And when the birds need to expand their live performance capabilities, now that Crosby and Michael Clark, that drummer, are gone, they're reminded of the guy from the bank, and they call up Graham Parsons and ask him to audition. And first, they were going to have him play uh, piano, but he quickly gets his hillbilly hooks into the group, and starts pushing them in this completely different musical direction. Right. So this loops back to what we said earlier about the ongoing tensions with Graham and the band, right? So Roger McGuinn of, of the birds, he's really the birds guy. He has big plans for this project that they're working on now that they need Graham for. And he is going to call it sweetheart of the rodeo. And it's this big expansive thing. And it's going to cover a whole bunch of styles and be like this tour through American music. And then Graham gets in the conversation and just convinces everybody that they need to stop down at the country and Western side of this project and just throw all the chips in. So he gets them to go to Nashville and they turn it into a full on country record. Yeah. And then Graham starts hanging out with the stones. Oh, that's a good, it's a good thing to mention Graham and the stones, because this is what I mean. You may not know Graham or his music all that well, but you know, sticky fingers and sticky fingers doesn't happen without Graham, right? Uh, That's correct, yeah. And, and number two, it is said that Keith Richards is the one who points out this shaky situation happening in South Africa, apartheid, and encourages Graham to rethink his participation in that Birds tour. So we're back where we started. And it gets us to Graham and freaking Bobby Keys, the saxophone player, late great rest in peace for the Stones. Those two have a jam session project that they refer to as everybody ready for the band name. <laughs> the remain the remains of the International Main Street Flying Burrito Brothers Blues Band. Why they shorten it? So when Chris Hillman gets fed up with Roger McGuinn and being in the birds, he re- reunites with Graham in L.A. and they decide to shorten it into the flying burrito brothers that you might know today so these dudes do what you and i would do if our lives changed dramatically and we decided to move to the west coast randomly and start music they moved in together and then they just did a lot of drugs uh in fact they called it the physical abuse program uh liquor cocaine and groupies (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a quote so they have some songs and they have some stints in the birds but they don't have a full band, so they start shopping this concept to record labels, and there's no luck. And so they eventually fill out the group with people that they've played with before, a couple of friends, the guys you mentioned. Sneaky Pete, he's been playing around the scene for years and balancing a day job as an animator on Gumby. Could not make that up. That is real. He was an animator totally and crazy. a musician. He would just go out at night and play, and then he'd get up in the morning and make Gumby happen. And then they call up Graham's pal from the International Submarine Band, and this is a guy will become important to our story today. And his name is Chris Etheridge. Hey, remember when we got that feedback from uh, listeners that said that sometimes we uh, 
we lose our way while we're talking. We get a little distracted. <laughs> no, no one ever says that ever. We ever, are ever. very task oriented and always stick to the script. That is not true. Uh, but I, I, I will say, you know, all joking aside, in conversation, I think that's fine when it's me and you, a couple of old buddies talking about our favorite things. But, you know, in life, sometimes I can t- tend that way as well. Like I lose my focus a little bit, get a little bit distracted. Yeah. Suddenly you're like watching YouTube videos. Yeah. And- you know what doesn't work in a boardroom is to go squirrel and just yell <laughs> like that out loud. Like, my, no, that ended. That ended before you got to the boardroom. Yeah, some, yeah. You, you know, you, you, had, you had to get it under control. You had to get it under control. And there's different ways. Sometimes people, you know, they do it with coffee and caffeine or whatever. And so I had heard about Magic yeah. Mind. I don't know if you've seen these ads, uh, they they promise to do this sort of same thing, but it's with all natural ingredients. And you know, as I get older and more, I'm pretty health conscious, and we have you know allergies and such in our house, so we're, we're pretty careful about what we put in our bodies. And I was like, I, you know, I don't know. Is this is this a, a real thing I, I should try? Uh, and so I gave it a shot. And I got to say, man, it's it's just these little shots. They're green. And it, it's it really, I mean, if you if you like to go to Starbucks and get your matcha, like that's basically what it tastes like. And it's got matcha in it. You can mix it into your coffee or into something if you want. Or you can just like take it like a shot. And, you know, I'm a, I, I can handle that. So I have done that. And yeah. I've, I have found... Really good results. It's got it's all natural ingredients. It's the matcha. It is lion lion's mane mushrooms. Uh, there's uh, cordyceps mushrooms. There's rosea. There's uh, just a whole bunch of natural stuff from the earth. Smash down a real quick drink, and I, it's interesting. I will say, like the focus is there, the energy is there. Feels way better than the the artificial like kind of jolt you get from caffeine. So I, I recommend. Yeah. It. Yeah. And I say something sometimes that makes people turn around and think I have 18 heads when I'm like, no, I really don't like coffee (laughs) and I can't, I can't drink coffee because it's, it's such a stimulant for me that it's, it's too much. Yeah. You don't do coffee at all, do you? It's like when I do, I'm like, why did I do this? It's like <laughs> such a, it's such a, but all of this, like, there's none of that. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not, you're not having a cocoa bean or whatever, how much, whatever right. sugar you're having in that ice, ice thing that I have, because I don't like the way coffee tastes and it has to be ice cream. But this has been great. Yeah. Um, like, I, so. we, we got to get you some of it. I think I, you'll love it. And, and you, if you're listening and you want to get some, magicmind.com slash bedtime stories magicmind.com slash bedtime stories and you use the code bedtime 20 to get uh, up to 56 percent off uh, your subscription and uh you know get the 30 pack make that discount work for you and see what you think i i, I think you'll be thrilled and you can hit the link in the show notes if you have any trouble getting there and now we get to the actual story for today everybody ready <laughs> so those guys get a $20,000 advance from A&M Records. Finally, in November of 68, they begin work on the very first Flying Burrito Brothers record. The sessions for this record were known for being a little wild. I don't I don't know if you know stories about this session. Uh, apparently, Graham was having oxygen tanks brought into the studio to increase alertness. Have you ever done the oxygen bar thing? No, I kind of like to. Uh, but no, I haven't I'm, done I'm that. sure it's good. Get an eye on oxygen, whatever. Uh, friends of the guys stop by to hang and start singing background vocals. So there's like random background vocals that are not very good in, in the back of this record from like David Crosby, Peter Tork from the Monkees, 
Frank Zappa's groupie collective, which sounds like we might need a whole full episode on that little detail. I don't know. But yeah. they're, they're all just showing up and hanging out. And they go through, count them, everybody, four drummers, because some of the guys they hire are too fucked up to sit behind the kit. And that is literally what happened. Uh, eventually, this becomes an album that will be known as the Gilded Palace of Sin. Did you ever own this record? Yes. Thank you, John Davis of Super Drag, who turned me on to it. And yeah, I bought it. I thought Aretha like always 100% owned Do Right Woman. I had no idea that that was... A song that the Flying Burrito Brothers did. There's and a that, there's a I lot of that. Love the, that song. The Flying Burrito Brothers covered other people, and other people covered the Flying Burrito Brothers. They, you know, even if you've never owned this record, though, most music heads have seen this record. So right. let's talk about the album cover. To put it simply, they're wearing nudie suits. Everybody, <laughs> no, that's what I, they're wearing. I like the idea that there's people who have gotten to this point in the episode. They've seen the title of the episode. They've listened to us talk for 10 minutes, and they think a nudie suit is something that makes you look naked. I, I just, I think that's yeah. funny. Like, oh my God, they look naked on the cover? That is not what a nudie suit is. Mr. Nashville, Mr. Tennessee, would you like to talk to us about nudie suits? Yeah, we have to talk about nudie con. That's that's who we're going to talk about now. And Nuta Kotelerenko is his given Ukrainian name. He's born in 1902. And then during the Great Depression, he will move with his wife to New York City, and he sells undergarments to showgirls. That's literally totally. his bit. Yeah. They call it, I'm not making this up, nudies for ladies. So that's that's how it all starts. It's like sort of a so, play on his first name, but then it's also because he starts by selling underwear to women. And in the 40s, he moves to California and makes clothes out of his freaking garage and he meets the singer who's struggling at the time named Tex Williams. Unbelievable. And he can convinces him that if he buys him a sewing machine, he will be able to set him apart by making him custom clothing. And that is how this thing works. If you know the name Tex Williams at all, you're probably picturing a nudie suit right now. And this is because this becomes Nudie's business plan. He's going to clothe celebrities and let them be his marketing. So he eventually will clothe Porter Wagner in the same way. Think of Porter, okay? Maybe you don't know Tex Williams. If you know who Porter Wagner is, think about how you picture him. You're probably picturing a nudie suit. Yeah, he goes to sleep in one. In 2000, <laughs> I just thought it's funny. In 2006, <laughs> Porter said that he had accumulated 52 Holy of those suits. Shit. And they cost, get ready for it, between... 11 and 18 grand each since he got that free one in 62. <laughs> I gotta say. And if the names Tex Williams and Porter Wagner don't inspire a mental image, let me explain nudie suits in one word. Rhinestones. Okay, nudie will design Elvis's gold lame suit. Uh, he creates Hank Williams' white cowboy suit, and eventually he's going to clothe John Wayne, George Jones, Cher, John Lennon, Michael La Michael freaking Landon. My mom is suddenly tuned into this episode. She was a big Michael Landon guy. Oh, yeah. big Michael Landon guy. Uh, or girl, I should say. America, Chicago, ZZ Top, they all wear nudie suits. I think Reagan owned a nudie suit. I too. think Reagan owned a nudie suit, too, actually, now that you say that. So... Knowing Porter Wagner and Tex Williams with their classic country pedigree helped to start this trend. It may make a little more sense that when Graham Parsons is thinking about how to convey who this band is, remember, he's really eaten up with this whole Nashville country thing, right? And, and he's, he's trying to meet out a message to send to folks about what to expect 
when they place Gilded Palace of Sin on a turntable, right? This isn't the birds. He is. This is him. This is his thing. So his big idea is he's going to buy the whole band nudie suits. But special nudie suits. And if you haven't seen them, let me describe one of them. Graham's <laughs> nudie suit has pills, poppy flowers, marijuana leaves, naked girls, and a big old cross on the back. I mean, that's the kind of suit you wear to church or to meet her mom. One of those two things. Hallelujah. Here's a quote from Wilco guitarist Patrick Sanzone that the nudie suit, quote, has a currency in pop culture and rock and roll culture because of that Burrito Brothers album cover. It's such an iconic image. You can see it referenced all the time, even by people who don't really understand what they're referencing. It's a statement similar to the Beatles putting out those Sgt. Pepper suits, end quote. They don't just pose in them. I don't know if you know this, right? So they become a bit for a while. They take them on the road when they go out to support that album. But famously, this is hard, and the tour doesn't go that well. They are literally very hard to play in. They are made of what they make military and police forms out of. This is a quote from Chris Hillman. Quote, we did one big promotional thing for A&M and wore the suits, and it was almost like a jinx because we didn't play very well. With the lights, the suits were glowing, and you're going, oh, my God. When you go all the way back, episode six of this show, we talk about Graham Parsons and his untimely death and the unconventional way his body is disposed of. Grand Theft Parsons. That's right. The, the main perpetrator of those hijinks is a guy named Phil Kaufman. And he has quite the story of his own. But for the purposes of our story today, he is road managing the Flying Burrito Brothers at this time, the nudie suits period. And he sees these suits as a big pain in the ass. So here's a quote uh, from oh, him. Yeah, yeah, read that. Uh, quote, I was new in the business and get these fucking guys with these silly suits that I had to look after. We had to schlep them around. They look good, but it was too soon to be in nudie suits. If you show up at a hootenanny in fucking rhinestones, you're going to get a whole lot of hooting. They look like freak show, but it was something Graham like. So we had to do it in quote. The uh, the unreleased Flying Burrito Brothers album is called A Whole Lot of Hootin'. At the Hootenanny. Uh, so the tour ends. Phil Kaufman heads back to L.A. And he's hauling the suits in dry cleaning bags inside the back of his Ford Country Squire station wagon. Shouts to the Ford Squire. Uh, Do you ever you ever own one of those? Did your dad ever have one of those? Nah. Uh, no. So, way. so Phil lives in a, in a bad neighborhood. And he gets home one night. And he locks up the vehicle. And he goes to bed. And he wakes up the next morning and realizes the car has been broken into. Oh, so... This has to be the first time those nudie suits go missing and disappear. So so not all of them. Yeah. One of them, weirdly. And that's maybe the weirdest part of the story is that only one disappears. And it's the bag that contains Chris Etheridge's suit. And this is a quote from Kaufman. It was a really shitty neighborhood and they must have just grabbed something. Yeah. And these suits are valuable, right? Well, I mean, yes. They paid like 500 apiece for them with that A&M advance. In today's world, that makes them like four grand a piece. But it does sound like a smash and grab the way it's described. Like, why would you just take the one? Why would you take one suit bag? I mean, they're all similar with what's in them. It's not like you opened it up and was like, oh, this one is going to be more valuable. So did they literally just grab one because they could carry it? 
I, I don't know. I think the band was pretty fed up with the suits anyway. And we know Phil was. And, and they don't wear them again really after 69. This is like the end of the nudie suit period. Oh, this is such a great story, everybody. And while there is still variations of the band floating around, that actual Flying Burrito Brothers entity that people know that music heads revere isn't around very long. You know, it's like like Guns N' Roses made three records and they get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like the Flying Burrito Brothers, super significant band. And they're like, Flash! Um, and Chris Etheridge leaves the band by 69 and really the whole thing dissolves by 71. So, you know, let's talk about the suit and what happened to it. Well, that's where I want to it's spend great. the rest of the time. And to do yeah, that, it's a great story. we've got to move this story from 1971, where we're sitting now, and go all the way to last year, 2022. Last fall, the Country Music Hall of Fame opened an exhibit that they called Western Edge. And in that exhibit, they put on display the other three Flying Burrito Brothers nudie suits. There's a quote from the CEO of the Country Music Hall of Fame. His name is Kyle Young. And he said this during the opening for that display. Despite our best efforts, Chris Etheridge's white suit with roses has vanished into the midst of history and is currently untraceable. So... If you know someone who is proudly wearing it to local cookouts, <laughs> let us know. We would love to borrow it. I love that quote. Uh, if I was to make a list of possible suspects for this guy, like, cause I, I feel, I mean, when you approach it that way, I'm like, sure, I want to help out. Top of the list for me is our occasional fill in co host and good friend, Phil Medley. Like, this is how he dresses. If he had a nudie suit, he would wear it at the barbecue. Do you know who I'd like to see in Chris Etheridge nudie suit? Who's that? Um, Your wife? We'd have to have a time machine, but Liberace. I'd like to see him in a <laughs> Graham Parsons nudie suit playing piano. Oh, man. Well, so the CEO of the Country Music Hall of Fame makes that statement. And then a couple of months later, so now roughly, that's like September of 22, November of 22, a little over a year ago, Chris Etheridge's daughter gets a call from an old friend of her dad's. And this guy says, you're not going to believe this, but I think I found your dad's suit. And I think it's up for auction in London. Yeah. But but are you ready for the weird part? Yeah. Is everyone ready for the weird part? Because here it comes. <laughs> it's listed in an auction house in London as, quote, Elton John's nudie cone bespoke Rocket Man suit, 1971. Yeah, the crazy, totally, totally, totally crazy. And the fact that they found it, it was a big ordeal. Like it was a really wonderful thing that they were able to find that suit. So, but he passed. He passed away what, ten years ago, right? Yeah, two thousand twelve. Chris Etheridge is gone, right? And his daughter was born after the suit was stolen. So she had heard the story. She and she even went looking for it for a bit, which I, you know. You hear your dad tell this story. I think this became like family lore. You know, I had this suit. I'm the one that's missing. It got stolen. Everybody else has theirs. So she grew up with this, and she's looked for it and just never got close. So why would this suit suddenly appear? Not to mention, why would it be being auctioned off as having belonged to Elton John? And she and the family, when they hear this, have no idea. I think they're just like, this can't even be the right thing. But what makes this friend sure... That that's Chris's. So get this. In the auction house, there is a description, and it is mentioned 
that the name Chris Etheridge is written two places inside the damn suit. It doesn't say Reginald. It doesn't say Dwight. It doesn't say Rocket Man. It has the name of the freaking person that owned it who was stolen out of a bag out of a car. And the crazy thing is, Elton has been wearing that suit in public and on television in the 1970s. In January yep. 1971, he performs your song on top of the pops while wearing it. And later... Oh, man, it's so funny. He wears it when he's the best man at Bernie Toppin's wedding. And if you (laughs) dig out the European single of Rocket Man, he's wearing it on the damn cover. (laughs) So how in the hell, A, does no one notice it until this past year? I don't understand that. And B, how did Elton get it in the first place? So I... I'd struggle with this because I don't understand. I know Elton knows who the Flying Burrito Brothers are, and I don't understand how he doesn't make the connection at some point. I mean, I understand this isn't like the biggest headline-making drama of all time, but I feel like he should know the name Chris Etheridge. At some point, it should come across his his radar, and he should be like, oh, that's the that name is in this suit that I own. Like, It's weird to me that that never happened. But beyond all that, why does no one notice? I think A... No one's looking for it. And and Elton John wears flamboyant things all the time. And this is in the 70s, right? So, like, it just takes off. And, yes, the Flying Burrito Brothers are looking for it. But, it's, again, it's not like a big thing that everybody's got an eye out for. And, B, this is pre-internet. So, like, top of the pops in the European editions of the singles, they're not breaking this way across the pond. It's not like now where if you put that out, we would easily access it. I think a lot of Americans didn't see Top of the Pops and definitely didn't see that single cover for years and years and years and years. Yeah. So how does Elton get get a hold of the, the suit? Well, this is another weird part. The best anyone can remember, including his people, he bought it off the rack at Nudie's shop. What? What? <laughs> it's always fun to say that. <laughs> what? Do you have that quote from the, the person who worked in Elton's camp in the 70s? Yeah, I do. Here we go. Quote, Elton didn't have a lot of money in 1970, she says. He ended up buying a suit off the rack, and that was the suit. It wasn't unusual to buy something off the rack at Nudie's. People would sell their clothes back then if they were going to go wear them anymore. And Elton knew who the burritos were, but it seems to me that he didn't make the connection that it was Chris Etheridge. So, did the thief just go back and sell the suit back at the store that made it? So, I don't think anybody knows. Etheridge's daughter is on the record saying that she thinks this was an inside job. Quote, it was a betrayal, not by a band member, and not Phil Kaufman. It may have been someone close, but I don't have any definitive proof. I think she has an idea. She thinks she knows who did it. So I th- I'm pretty sure the premise to her is that she is that somebody was mad at them or at Chris and knew where the suit was, took it, and then just basically like sold it back to the shop just to mess with them. Yeah. But how in the heck does it get from Elton to an auction house? So he puts it up for auction. And back in 1988... A Scottish guy buys it, and he's had it this whole time. 
And so it was, that's why you didn't hear about it or think about it or anything because it was marked as Elton John memorabilia and it was in some guy's closet in Scotland. And in then last year, the guy, I don't know if he had a, you know, student loans to pay off or what, but he decided he wanted the scratch, I guess. So he hires this auction house and then all of this happens. And, and the interesting piece of this is that just discovering the suit, I like, this is the part that's weird to me. It's like, if you see it and you're like, my name's in it, it's mine. It feels, you know, open and shut to me. But apparently discovering the suit and claiming it once belonged to your dad does not get the property turned over to you with no questions asked. Etheridge's daughter ends up having to buy the suit from the Scottish dude and the auction house. And the amount she pays is undisclosed, but they want you to think it's not as much as they would have gotten if they put it up for auction. Right. And I remember when this suit showed up at the Country Music Hall of Fame. It was really awesome. Here's one little addendum to the story I saw after Chris Etheridge died in 2012 his house had been severely burglarized and so the family had almost nothing of his left so the discovery of that suit being around a decade later was a really awesome thing well and for now you can take that trip to nashville and see it for yourself reunited with the other three suits it's inside the exhibit country music hall of fame they're all back together it's it's a wild story we've talked a lot about stolen property and instruments and stuff that you know disappear and reappear on this show but the nudie suit's a new one that's fun yeah and the grand parson nudie suit good golly miss molly i mean no one ever asked to have a nudie suit to have you know drugs on it (laughs) pills pills and weed and poppy flowers and a cross so Um, were you ever did you ever have a western wear phase were you ever wearing stuff like that no, no, no. I, so I, I had a mullet and I wore black <laughs> concert t-shirts. You were in Tennessee. So I I briefly had a couple of, and I'm trying to think of who gave them to me. At some point, I met someone who had some like really nice uh, Western wear shirts. Oh, I remember who it was. It was this photographer I used to hang out with. And he was like, hey, you're like the only person I know who's my body type. This has happened to me several times throughout my life because I am a pretty unique uh, tall and skinny guy in terms of, the way clothes fit me. And so this guy was like, I think you, you could wear these. So he gives me these like Western wear shirts that are a little bit too Western wear for me, but they're, they're in the style and flavor of like that sort of flamboyance that you see on a nudie suit. So I had them for a while and I'd wear them every once in a while. And then when when we all worked together and we worked with, with Phil Medley, he would, he just openly drool over these shirts. And so eventually I was like, I'm not even wearing these. And so I gave them to him. I'm pretty sure he still oh. wears them when he performs sometimes. Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, and he looks great in them, too. It just yeah, fits. He, he, I know. It looks way better on him than me. And that's why I was like, well, yeah. I definitely don't need to be wearing these like once a year, sort of quasi-ironically, when Phil can wear them and, and make them look good all the time while playing music that, you know, is definitely inspired by Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah, my other Graham Parsons story is that uh, one of the best, maybe the best, hold on, let me see if it's down here, the best groomsman gift I've ever been given? You know our mutual friend, Ben? Yes. And his, one of his weddings, my groomsman gift was the box set. Did you ever have that? Where is it? Dude, how amazing. Oh, and we, ha- I have, we have to tell him this. Are you ready? This is so awesome. Yeah. What- so... 
between my marriages, I got that box set too. Oh, really? And just <laughs> and just listen to and listen to it nonstop. So, like, I mean, that's the other the thing about Graham it, that we can fill in the blanks here. I mean, this is really a story about Chris Etheridge, but it's hard to talk about the Flying Burrito Brothers without talking about Graham Parsons because that's 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 the story and the name that comes out of them, right? And yeah, you know he's he's the he's the front guy, he's the guy who dies too young, et cetera. But after the Flying Burrito Brothers, I mean, he essentially gets kicked out of the Flying Burrito Brothers, so he goes yep. and does these solo albums, and those are hugely influential to folks all the way. I mean, one of the people they're hugely influential to is a is a guy who's growing up in California at the time named Adam Duritz, who will go on in a decade or so and start a band called the County Crows, and that band will change my life. So there is an indirect but sort of direct line to the influence of Graham Parsons in my own personal life. Though, I mean, I appreciate Graham. I've never been a huge Graham head. Are you you're, you're a pretty big fan, though? Yeah, I was, and then I, I dropped it. So it was like a period, I was just kind of sad, and it worked, it worked really well. The you plan know, was just like listen to Graham Parsons and get over the breakup? I went and bought that, and it was just... It's just I listened to it. It wasn't a specific thing, and I wasn't trying to listen to sad music or whatever, but it was... It was there. It's like... Yeah. Yeah, it was the thing that I, I listened to, uh, you know, quite a lot at the time. So I, I really do... I really do like all that. that I, box I, I that try to really explain great. to people that that is how everything is categorized in my head, is by, like, by the album or the songs that I was listening to a lot during the time. So, like, I, I've noticed other people do this. Like, I have, my daughter does this with food. I think we've probably mentioned that before. She'll, she'll remember. I'll be like, hey, remember this time we did blah, 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 unrelated thing? And she'll be like, oh, yeah, I think we had cheese sticks before we did that. And I'm like, okay. Well, for me, it's like, I think Graham Parsons was on the radio when that happened. <laughs> you know, like, I'm pretty sure I was listening to Matchbox 20 uh, while I was driving yeah. the car when we did that or whatever. It's all connected that way. And it's one of my favorite things about tunes, man. So yeah. I, I think Graham Parsons also his spirit probably pretty happy that he was able to do that for you. Yeah, and uh, just for extra reading fun, if you have no idea what happened to uh, Graham Parsons, don't go Wikipedia. Uh, there's a movie I would give it a D for a movie. I don't know that has Johnny Knoxville in it, and it's called Grand Theft Parsons, and it's about how. Uh, what they uh, what happened at the end, and you can and also you go know, listen to episode six of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Right, absolutely, <laughs> and listen to episode six. It is it is a freakishly weird, unbelievable rock and roll story that most people couldn't believe. I told you so. it was in here. I found it. The box set. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. It is beautiful. All right. Uh, if you want to get involved in the show, you know how to do it. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can get involved online in other ways as well. Instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Facebook.com slash the story guys. Uh, we are the story guys.com. Uh, that's just the, our headquarters for all our stuff. And Patreon.com backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. If you want to support the show, grab extra content, five or 10 bucks a month. Do that now, and uh, we'll make it worth your while. Make sure you support the show. We appreciate everything you do for us. And until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Don't set your friends on fire and keep telling stories! 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.